Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife, whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbour a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. 
It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Thanks, Margaret. I encourage you as we work through these chapters to have uh, your own Bible open and follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the pews, those black Bibles, and you're welcome to use one of those. But I think we need help as we look at these passages. So why don't we pray and ask that God would help us. Heavenly Father, thank you that all of your word is useful and is spoken by you and can point us to Lord Jesus and teach us how to live for you as your people. Please, by your spirit, give us understanding as we look at these parts of your word together. And please help us grow to be more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, learning to live as God's people is hard. I mean, just imagine an ordinary day. Uh, the alarm squawks a wake-up call at 6.30am, but it was a late night last night, so I snooze the alarm and roll over. But in the background, I can hear the kids arguing, and Jess is trying to get everyone ready for the day, and she's stressed. I really should get up and help out, but I'm so tired. How do I love God and love others in that moment? Uh, it's 9am and I like to start my day, work day by reading and praying, but the phone rings. Someone is upset and needs help. How do I love and lo- God and love others in that moment? It's 11am and I'm reading the news over my second coffee for the day. There are terrible things happening around the world and in our own backyard. How should I respond to all this? It's nearly one o'clock and I'm driving to meet someone for lunch when I pass someone broken down on the side of the road. What do I do? Maybe I should stop, but I'm definitely no mechanic and I'll be late for lunch. What's the right thing to do here? It's 5 p.m. and I'm walking into Woolies to get a few groceries and I pass a man begging for money. How do I love God and love others in that moment? I've got my groceries and I take a lap down the chocolate aisle. Dangerous, I know. Do I buy the cheapest? Do I buy the fair trade, organic, the most delicious? Should I leave it on the shelf? It's 7.30 and Jess and I have finally got the kids into bed. We sit down to watch something on the telly together. But how do I choose what to watch and what I shouldn't? How do I love God and love others? Now, no wonder I'm exhausted at the end of that day. Maybe your day is like this. Maybe your day is much worse. See, that's the thing about living as God's people, right? Life doesn't come to us in nice, neat, easy categories like an ethics textbook. It's not one thing at a time. It's moment to moment. It's a mixed bag and every day is different. Learning to live as God's people is hard. And that's what we see here in Deuteronomy 19 to 25 too. Before Moses dies and the people go into land God promised them, Moses has sat them down to show them how to live as God's saved people in the land that God is giving them. And he's calling them to obey God, to discover the good life as God's people, a loving life with the living God. But this life, it's a mixed bag. 
It doesn't come in nice, neat, easy categories. There will be all sorts of troubles and difficulties and strange situations that people will face as they live in the land. They will need to learn to love God in every part of their lives. And these chapters reflect that. It's hard to see a clear structure in them. If you look at the headings in your Bibles, you'll probably notice big sections titled Miscellaneous Laws or Various Laws. Because these chapters aren't nice and neat and ordered. They come at us like life does. A mixed bag. Moses is calling God's people to live in a way that reflects God's character in every area of their mixed and tricky day-to-day lives. So we're going to work through these chapters a little differently. Rather than working them through, through them chapter by chapter like we normally do, we're going to look at seven big themes of how God's people are to reflect God's character in everyday life. We're not going to work through every verse, but I've listed the sections for each so that you can look them up at home if you would like. These aren't just laws for ancient Israel. These are laws for us too. We're going to see how these chapters, they actually show us our absolute need for Jesus. In fact, he's our only hope to reflect God's character in every area of our lives. And we're going to see how through Jesus, although we aren't under the law, the big themes of these chapters can give us wisdom for loving God and loving others in our everyday lives too. All right, let's go. First, God's people are to live justly. God is a God who is just and righteous. And living as his people will mean judging justly, not bearing false witness. And it will mean dealing with one another fairly. In chapter 19, that means appointing cities of refuge, places where someone who accidentally kills his neighbour can be protected until the proper legal processes can be followed. If he didn't do it on purpose, he has to go free. It would be unjust for them to punish him for a crime that he hasn't committed. But if he killed him deliberately, then he'll face the death penalty. Living justly also means bearing false witness becomes a really serious crime. That means they don't move the landmarks that divide their properties from each other's. It also means that they need two or three witnesses as evidence of a crime, not just one. In fact, anyone who bears false witness will be punished. Look at chapter 19, verse 18. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. See, there's a principle behind this. God's people are meant to live and judge fairly, justly. There should be a sense of proportion, of justice to their punishments. If someone is bearing false witness to try and get his brother punished, then it is fair that he faces the same punishment. That sense of proportion is summed up in verse 21. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That seems really confronting to us, right? Almost barbaric. But we're judging an ancient law by modern standards. 
This is not about barbaric punishments. It's about justice and proportion. You don't chop someone's hand off for stealing a loaf of bread. That's not proportionate. The punishment should fit the crime. God's people should live justly. In chapter 25, that includes a maximum of 40 lashes for any crime, having just and fair weights, and a very strange case of a wife intervening in a fight and causing serious injury, possibly sterility to another man. You can ask me about that one later. But the principle behind all of these is the same. Because they've been rescued by a just and righteous God, they should be just in all their dealings and judgments with each other. In all the various moments of day-to-day life, they're to live justly. Second, they're to fight fairly. Remember, God has just rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's giving them the land of Canaan, this land that he promised to Abraham. But this land is occupied. And so God is sending them in to wage war in judgment against the peoples of the land. This is difficult for us. God is acting as judge against the people of the land. And he is using Israel as the instrument of his judgment. We can't deal with this fully now, but if you want to hear more, I talked about this back on the 22nd of May when we looked at Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And if you want to know more, you can have a listen on our website or on YouTube. Or come and ask me later. But the point is that warfare, it is going to be a huge part of their lives for years while they conquer the land that God is giving them. They need to learn how to fight fairly. So God tells them how. Chapter 20, he says that he's with them, that he will fight for them. God gives an exemption to those in the army who've just built a house or gotten engaged or planted a vineyard and haven't enjoyed those things yet. They get a pass from fighting to enjoy the good things that God is giving them. And those who are afraid are also told to go home. God's people, they don't need everyone they can get to fight for them because God is fighting for them. And so God preserves his people to enjoy his blessings. The nations and the cities inside the land, they're to completely destroy them so they're not led astray after other gods. But cities outside the land get an offer of peace first. If they accept, they're to serve God's people and God's people can't harm them. If they don't accept, Israel can destroy the men who have fought against them, but they aren't to harm the women and the children. They can be taken as plunder, it says, but they must be treated with respect and cared for. God's people are not to rape and pillage. Chapter 21 even gives guidelines for how a man can take one of these captured women to be his wife. But he can't just take her, he has to provide for her, he has to give her time to grieve, and he has to either marry her or let her go free. It's a harsh world. But at a time when women couldn't work and care for themselves, God's people are to care for women, even those who are captured. This sounds horrible to us, but in the ancient world, this is measured and revolutionary. This is treating the other nations with respect and with care. They're even to treat the land with respect. No scorched earth policies. Look at chapter 20, verse 19. 
When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat them from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human? They should be besieged by you. God's people are to fight fairly, even to the land. They're also to care for each other. God has graciously saved them from slavery in Egypt. We saw earlier in Deuteronomy that he's loved them and provided for them like a father cares for his son. Even when they're wandering in the wilderness, they're his people and he loves them. And so they should love one another. They should treat one another with respect and dignity and care. In every part of their lives, they're to care for one another. Look at some of the simple, practical ways that they should do that in their everyday lives. With lost property, chapter 22, verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your, to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And see how they're to love one another with someone broken down on the side of the road. Verse 4. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. It's no RACQ in, the ancient, in ancient Israel. And even with how they build their houses. Look in chapter 22 verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you shall not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. This is ancient workplace health and safety. (laughs) If you build a house, build a fence around your roof so that people don't fall off. These are practical, simple laws, but they reflect the attitude God's people are to have towards one another, caring for each other, considering how their actions even building their own house, will affect others. They're to show the care and grace towards each other that God has shown them. This is particularly the case when it comes to the needy. They're to look after the needy. They were a needy people, remember? A people of slaves, worked and oppressed by the Egyptians, taken advantage of, their children killed, their work quotas increased until they couldn't meet them. And they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord rescued them from Egypt. And they should reflect this as they interact with each other. They don't oppress people like they were oppressed. They're kind like God has been kind to them. So they don't give an escaped slave back to his master. They don't kidnap people to sell them into slavery. We read that before. Trying to steal someone's life like that attracts the death penalty. They don't take a millstone or a cloak in pledge. That's their shelter or their source of income. That's not on. And they should pay their workers on the same day. Chapter 24, verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who live in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. See the reason there? Lest the worker cries against them to the Lord. 
just as they cried to the Lord in their slavery in Egypt. They're to reflect their gracious God, not their oppressors. It also affects the way they do their harvest. They don't strip their fields, their olive trees or vineyards bare. They leave some for the needy. Verse 21. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. See the reason? They do it because they were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them. As those rescued from oppression by gracious and generous God, they should be a gracious and generous people in every part of their lives. As God's people, they're to look after the needy. He also tells them, love your family. Their God is a faithful God, a God who always keeps his promises, who wants what is good for his people. And his people are to be faithful too, faithful to their families. And so these commands are about family and about their sexual ethics. Because God's good design for sex is between a man and a woman in marriage, that means being faithful even before they get married. Now, these laws are actually also about caring for those who are vulnerable. In the ancient world, it was women who were the vulnerable ones in relationships. Women couldn't work to provide for themselves. They didn't have their own independent legal status. Without family, widows and orphans had no provider for them. They depended on others. In relationships, they bore all the risk. And so these laws are designed so that men love their families and to protect women. It's even there in the laws we read about divorce earlier. If a man divorces a woman, he has to give her a certificate, legal proof of her status, not just send her away. If she remarries, he can't go back for her. He can't marry her again. He can't use divorce as a manipulation or casually divorce her and get her back later. Divorce is serious and should be taken seriously. Chapter 21, in families where a man has more than one wife, he can't preference the kids of the wife he likes more. He must treat them equally and care for them all. Chapter 22, a man can't just accuse his new wife of not being a virgin and have her killed because he doesn't like her. He has to prove it. Remember, two or three witnesses? And her parents can prove him wrong. And if he is wrong, he's beaten, fined, and can never divorce her all his days. He has to care for her because she's vulnerable. Men and women who commit adultery, they face the, same, they face the consequence of death. Faithfulness is a serious matter for God's people. It reflects God's faithfulness. But then in chapter 22, there are a whole range of cases designed to protect women who have been abused. God is telling his people, love your family. Be faithful to them as I have been faithful to you. Protect and provide for those who are vulnerable and needy. Many of these laws, they seem harsh to us. And maybe they raise from difficult, some difficult things for you. 
I want to say this very clearly. God's word never condones abuse. It never condones rape. That is a terrible abuse of a good thing that God has given. If you've experienced that or if you are experiencing abuse, I want to encourage you to talk to someone you trust about it. Please, you don't have to suffer alone. and We really do want to help. These laws are not meant to give further opportunities to abusive husbands. They're there to provide certainty, care and hope for women in the harsh ancient world. God's people are to love their families. Marriage and sex in marriage is actually meant to be a good gift God's giving his people. And I think that's what's behind the law in chapter 24 verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. That's a long honeymoon. (laughs) A newly married couple is given a whole year off public duties simply to enjoy each other. God says to his people, love your family. They're also to live holy. We're most of the way there now. God's people are lived different to those around them. They serve a holy God, a God who is separate from creation because he alone is creator. A God who is separate from any and all evil and sin because he is perfectly righteous and good. And because this holy God has graciously saved them to be his people, they are to be a holy people, set apart from evil and sin. And that's behind a bunch of these laws too. Chapter 21, if they find a dead body and don't know who murdered the person, the elders of the closest city are to swear that they don't know about this and offer a sacrifice to make atonement for the murder, to recognise their sinfulness and acknowledge their sin to God, asking for his forgiveness. Chapter 22, they're not to mix together different seeds or animals or clothes, not because there's anything evil about this, but because it was meant to be a lived illustration of how God's people were set apart to be his. Notice that even their war camps were meant to be holy places because the Lord is with them to fight for them. That even affects how they use the toilet. Chapter 23, verse 12. You shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it. You shall have a trowel with your tools. When you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. See how following the Lord affects every area of day-to-day life? It's not that going to the toilet is sinful. It's a part of this great lived illustration of the holiness of God's people, set apart from anything unclean. They're to do this because the Lord is with them in their midst. And so they are to be holy. This includes other things like not having prostitutes as part of worship, as the nations around them did. It includes obeying God's word by fulfilling your vows and listening to the priests if you have a skin disease. In every area of their lives, 
God's people were to live holy, to be different from those around them, set apart from anything evil or sinful. This means that the people ultimately were meant to look to Jesus. This is the real part that I want you to really hear. How did the people go with, with living as God's people in everyday life? Spoiler, they failed miserably. They didn't live justly. Over their history, they played favourites and those with power used and abused those without. They didn't fight fairly. They made treaties with nations they shouldn't have and abused those they should have treated with respect. They didn't care for others. Instead, each person did what was right in their own eyes, taking for themselves. They didn't look after the needy. Instead, rich kings like Ahab and his wife Jezebel abused their power to steal from those who were poorer than themselves. They didn't love their families. Even King David took another man's wife and committed adultery with her. They didn't live holy. They worshipped other gods and failed to be pure. And at times they even sacrificed their own children, just like the people around them. God's people failed miserably at reflecting his character in everyday life. And Deuteronomy, God warns them that if they don't keep his laws and live as his people, they will face his curse. They will face punishment and ultimately be sent out of his land. The exodus will be undone. And that's what happens. God's people face a curse. They're conquered by Babylon and Assyria and carted out of the land. We would face a curse too. Me for my failure to get out of bed and love my family at 6.30. For my lack of care for others stopped on the side of the road. For my failure to live justly by doing something about the injustice and the crime that I read about in the news. For my failure to live wholly indifferent in what I watch and speak and even in my thoughts. For my sin. Not just the wrong that I've done, but the good things that I've failed to do. My ongoing rebellion against the God who made me. All of us would be under the curse. That's what Paul said that we read before. But nestled in these chapters of Deuteronomy is this one strange law that points us forward. It causes us to look to Jesus, the only one who can save his people and us from the curse of sin. It's there in Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime, punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. A man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. The people aren't to leave the body of any such cursed man out overnight. They're to bury him the same day. Now, now it's not at all obvious at first how that points us to Jesus. Jesus shouldn't have been under a curse. In fact, he's the only person who has ever lived who didn't deserve the curse. He was perfectly just, showing mercy and grace to those in need and even speaking the truth to those in power. He cared for others perfectly, providing not just what they thought they needed, like healing, but forgiveness and reconciliation with God, their true deepest need. 
Although he was needy himself and didn't have anywhere to lay his head, he cared for those who were in need, feeding thousands of them with five loaves and two fishes. He loved his family, treating with perfect respect, dignity and care those women around him, honouring his parents, seeking the good of all. He lived a perfectly holy life, never giving in to sin, although he was tempted as we have been. Jesus perfectly reflected the character of our good and gracious God in every single moment of his everyday life. And yet he is hung on a tree. He willingly goes to the cross. He receives the death penalty because the religious and political leaders see him as a threat. All those looking on, they would have thought of Deuteronomy 21. This is a man who is cursed by God. His very death shows it. But Paul, he peels back the curtain on this strange situation to show us what's really going on. We read before in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus isn't on that cross because he is cursed by God. He's on that cross because we are cursed by God. He became a curse for us. He took the punishment, the curse that we deserve so that we might receive the blessing that he deserves for his perfect obedience. Jesus dies to take the punishment of any and all who will trust in him. And so by being joined to him in faith, we can share in all the blessings that are his because of his righteousness. That's the wonder of the cross. That's Jesus offered to you. He offers it freely to all who receive it by trusting in him. If you haven't yet, why not take him up on it? Come chat to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about that. But notice what else we receive. We receive the promised spirit. The Holy Spirit who writes the law on our hearts, who changes us from the inside out so that we can live to reflect the wonderful, gracious, generous, just character of our Lord Jesus in every moment of our everyday lives. And so, empowered by his spirit, these chapters don't just point us to our need for Jesus. They also give us wisdom for how we can live as his people by his spirit. They give us wisdom for how we too can live justly by always seeking what's right, never bearing false witness. We can care for others by being the people who are willing to stop, willing to ask if people are okay, maybe even asking our workmates if they'd like us to pray for them. We can look after the needy by generously giving of our time and money and energy for those who are in need. We can love our families by being radically faithful and both men and women using their power and energy to care for those who are vulnerable. We can live holy lives, set apart from sin, living different to those around us because we're serious about being God's people. Yes, learning to live as God's people is hard. Every day is a mixed bag. Every moment needs wisdom and care. And yet in every moment we can be reminded of our desperate need for Jesus. 
we can be encouraged that we are empowered by his spirit. And we can seek his wisdom to live and reflect his character in every area of our lives. We can only do it with his help through Jesus. But through Jesus, he will do it in us as his spirit works to change us so that we reflect him in everyday life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our sin to you. We confess that we are and deserve to be under your curse. We have failed to live justly and care for others and to be faithful to our families. In so many ways, we have chosen to disobey you. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Thank you that he willingly took our curse for us so we might share in all of his blessings. Thank you for the forgiveness we have as those who trust in him. We pray that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to grow us to be more like Jesus, to reflect your character in our everyday life to live justly and care for others and look after the needy and love our families and to live holy lives set apart from sin. We ask that you would do this work in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.